Amen. Thank you, Anne, for reading our passage for us. In just a minute, we're going to study that passage, but I'd like to lead us in a time of prayer before we do, so if you would bow your heads as I take us into God's throne room. Father, we have come before you this morning, and Lord, it's great that it's Sunday. Uh, But Lord, uh, during this week, we saw difficult images from our nation's capital, uh, things that, Lord, uh, shock and horrify us. God, but I am reminded that you have told us What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not your own selfish desires? God, we are indeed a selfish people. Uh, Lord, you say that we kill and we covet uh, because we don't get what we want. Uh, Lord, we don't have because we don't ask, but when we ask, we ask so we can spend it on our own motives and for our own desires. Lord, we are an adulterous and wicked people. God, friendship with this world means we make you our enemy. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for the selfishness that so easily corrupts and pollutes our minds and hearts. God, you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Let us humble ourselves, Lord, and receive your grace. God, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would help us to submit to you, to resist the devil that he might flee from us. Lawlessness comes from the evil one. God, let our laughter be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom. Lord, let us humble ourselves before you that we might be lifted up and exalted by you. God, I pray that you would have mercy upon us. Lord, we are so quick to slander one another. We're so quick to pass judgment on one another. God, we relish in our arrogant and boastful plans. We should remember, Lord, that our life is but a mist. We are here today and gone tomorrow. And instead of our will, Lord, we should be seeking your will. God, would you help us to do this? Would you forgive us, Lord, as a nation for these choices that we make? Would you forgive us as a people, God, for seeking our own good instead of the good of others? Lord, we don't love you and we don't love our neighbor. We love only ourselves. And so, Lord, have mercy on us and forgive us. God, the trouble and the turmoil and the difficulty we've experienced this week uh, as a country Lord, there's also been trouble and difficulty and hardship here at home, personally, in our church. Lord, I pray for Carol Veenstra, Lord, in the homegoing of Paul. Uh, Lord, we are saddened by his absence. God, we're grateful that he's spending eternity with you. But Lord, we pray for Carol that you would be near to her and have mercy on her. God, we pray for B. Zylstra as well in the homegoing of Dave. Uh, God, what a, what a great family to have been part of Calvary Church for so long. Would you bless B? Would you bless that whole family? Would you let them know that you are close to them? Lord, life is full of trouble and difficulty. I pray, Lord, for those who've gotten difficult health diagnoses this week, those who've had experience with, uh, Lord, difficulty with finding jobs or financial struggles. God, I pray for those who just simply are feeling the darkness and the heaviness of life. Lord, would you today help us to have the perspective you have, to be able to think through things the way you think through things. God, which of us can understand what's coming in the future what's happened in the past, or what's going on right now, except that your spirit 
make us aware. So Lord, take your word, reshape our minds and hearts, take away the media images that we've seen this week, the texts and things that we've participated in, the social media that we've engaged in, uh, the stuff from school and work and family that has shaped and molded our minds and hearts. Lord, we want to think about things from your perspective. We want your word, Lord, to be a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. So God, would you send your spirit and would you do this, Lord? We have asked for your forgiveness because we are indeed a sinful people, but God, by your power, we can stand righteous and holy before you because of what Jesus did for us. Grant your spirit so that with mighty power, we might be able to understand your thoughts and understand your ways. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In 2 Kings 19, you have one of the great miracle stories in the Bible. The city of Jerusalem is besieged and surrounded by the Assyrian army, 185,000 people in this army, troops surrounding the city of Jerusalem. All the rest of the cities of Israel have fallen along the way. Jerusalem is the last one standing. There is no way for them to be able to make it through this siege. The siege is deadly for the people of Jerusalem, and so they are crying out to God, please God, come and help us, please God, will you not see? Hezekiah lays out before the Lord, this is the threatening letter of Sennacherib, he is coming to destroy us, we have no food, we have no hope. And God in his miraculous power hears the cries and prayers of his people. And he sends the angel of the Lord, and it says that at night, the angel of the Lord walks through the Assyrian camp, and he puts to death 180,000 people. So much so, it says in the text, that the next morning when they woke up, here were all these dead bodies. And it's a powerful, amazing miracle of God's intervention. It's a reminder God does not forget his people. It's an encouragement that God is all-powerful, that God is near to those who call on his name. It's rightly celebrated in biblical history as being one of the just most stupendous and powerful and amazing miracles of God. Unless you happen to be a Syrian. And then... It's a bitter pill to swallow. I'm thinking of that 18-year-old Assyrian boy who is headed off to war for the first time. The oldest child in his family, his mom and dad are so proud of him. They've worked hard and saved to get his armor and his weapons that he's going to need. He's just enlisted in Sennacherib's army and this is his first tour of duty. Mom and dad have told all their friends how proud they are that their son has grown up and is going to be responsible and join with and be a man in this fighting. The young man's brothers and sisters, younger brothers and sisters look up to him as a model of being a good citizen, being a good uh, uh, part of the kingdom of Assyria. He probably went off to this battle the way that 18-year-olds here go off to college with nervousness, excitement, but fear, what's coming? And I think to myself, for him and for his mom and his dad, 
the miraculous intervention of God is a bitter and difficult thing as the angel of the Lord goes through that camp and puts all of them to death. That sentiment about, well, how do the parents feel? This becomes more explicit in a different miraculous intervention of God. This one from Judges 5 where the Midianites are oppressing Israel under the command of a man named Sisera. God also intervenes in this situation, also miraculously, literally sending help from heaven, and that through God's miraculous intervention, the Israelites are able to overcome a far superior uh, technological foe, and they are victorious. Sisera himself is put to death. But Judges 5 says this about Sisera's mom. Through the window peered Sisera's mother, Behind the lattice she cried out, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? Now her ladies in waiting tell her, oh it must be because the plunder is so big. There is no way the Midianites could have lost this battle. They had iron chariots, the Israelites did not. They far outnumbered the Israelites, they were the more powerful army, and so the the women around her tell her, no way he could have lost this. If it's taking him a long time to return, it's because he's simply counting up the plunder. But a mom knows. And in her heart, that darkness, that growing fear and anxiety will soon come to be true. Her son has been killed. The miraculous intervention of God is a bitter pill for her to swallow. Perhaps the prime Old Testament example of this is David with his son Absalom. Absalom is a part of David's kingdom, but at some point Absalom decides he wants to be king instead of his dad. And so through a coup, he overthrows his dad, forms an army, his dad is on the run, and Absalom sets out to hunt his dad, his own dad down, and kill him. Taking the throne, dishonoring, making himself obnoxious to David, David is on the run. He cries out to God in desperation. Lord, please don't let me face my own ruin. God, you've got to show up and help me. And God does. David has an army and Absalom has an army and they meet on the field of battle. God intervenes. Absalom is defeated and killed. But 2 Samuel 19 reports the end of the battle this way. For the whole army... The victory that day was turned to mourning. This is the victorious army. Because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed as when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Have you ever had that experience reading a story in the Bible? Maybe it's the story of the flood. And you want to celebrate that Noah and others are rescued. But then you think every other human was killed. Or the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire rains down from heaven. All of the city, the men, the women, 
and the children killed. And you read that story and you get a little pit in your stomach. Or the children of Israel being rescued from Egypt. Look at these amazing plagues. Look at what God's done. And then you realize there's lots of just ordinary average Egyptians that are getting hail and having firstborn die and don't even have any idea what's going on. And then the army goes through the Red Sea and every single one of them is swallowed up and you want to celebrate this miraculous intervention of God. But also you think, that's a lot of death. That's a lot of people that died. Or the conquest of Canaan. The fall of Jericho. The destruction of all these Canaanites as Israel gets the land promised to them by God. And you read the story and you think, yes, God is a faithful God. He's fulfilled his promises. But the miraculous intervention of God was a bitter pill for the Canaanites to swallow. Now I know the answers. God is sovereign. God is in control of all things. Absolutely true. They are sinners and the wages of sin is death. Also true. They have a chance to repent. Anyone who repents will be saved. Absolutely true. But still, do you still read the stories and think, ugh, my stomach feels sick. It's not just Bible stories. Anytime God moves, there can be a difficulty associated with it. I've told you before, I think that COVID-19 is a plague from God. Habakkuk 3 says, when God moves upon the earth, plagues go before him and pestilence follows behind him. I think in 2020 and still today, God is moving powerfully on the earth. And maybe you, like me, look at some of the effects of COVID-19 and you think, finally, Lord, you're doing something about stuff going on here. Maybe you see, for example, some aspects of the entertainment industry which had been constantly promoting wickedness and, and, and sinfulness and anti-Christian points of view being shut down and quieted to some extent, and you think, finally, Lord, thank you for doing something about that. Maybe you've seen over this past year uh, that God's doing something about people who have been the victims of police brutality, and there's been some level of awareness or conviction, you think, okay, Lord, this is good. Thank you for doing something. Maybe you've experienced uh, other cases where you've watched and you see the corruption in government and the, the chaos and all the stuff going on and COVID-19 has highlighted that many of these governments are not running things uh, according to the spirit, but instead according to the flesh. And you sit back and you cheer a little bit and you go, hopefully people are getting the message that God is not pleased with how all of this stuff is working. But then you look and you say, the people we know and love die from COVID. I prayed for Paul Veenstra. He passed away from COVID. That's a hard blow for our church. There have been others. Think about the fact that there's lots of really good businesses that are trying to run with the spirits leading, that are trying to serve the Lord and be a witness, and they got no customers, and they got no business, and they got to lay off employees. And you think, well, that's a bitter pill to swallow. You think about teachers who just basically got 
the stress level turned up to 10 trying to figure out how to teach and students and parents at home trying to figure all of this kind of stuff out. You got churches, it's an exa- it has been an exhausting year. And you think, I still think it's a movement of God on the earth. But there's a part of it that's sour and hard and bitter. And the question is, how are we supposed to think about these things? How are we supposed to think about the 185,000 Assyrians being killed? How are we supposed to think about David and Absalom? How are we supposed to think about Sodom and Gomorrah? How are we supposed to think about COVID-19? How are we supposed to process the fact that when God miraculously intervenes, there's some really great stuff that happens, but also some hard things. Revelation 10 is one of God's opportunities to help us figure out how to process this kind of stuff. So if you're willing, I'd love for you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 10. Revelation 10, if you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 997. If you're at home, I have no idea what page number it is, but it's all the way in the back. Revelation 10. What I love about God, one of the things I love about God and about his word, is he not only tells us what happened or what's happening or what's going to happen, he also helps us to think through how should we process what happened, what is happening, or what's going to happen. God is not simply about the facts. He enables us to think through the situations of life from his perspective. That's what Revelation 10 is. Now this is actually at a very momentous and important point, both in the book and in the future. What's happening is, is so far in the book of Revelation, we have had seven seals of judgment opened and six trumpets blown. And as we have read, there's been some pretty miraculous interventions of God in the word, world, plagues, difficulties, hardship, but also the gospel and other things going forward, stuff happening in the book of Revelation. When we get to Revelation 10, all the stuff that's happened so far in Revelation plus all the stuff that's happened with the Assyrians and with Absalom and with the flood and the Egyptians, all the stuff in human history, the COVID-19s, all that stuff, is about to get turned up to 10. And what you're going to get at the end of the book of Revelation is, if there have been any miraculous interventions of God so far in human history, this is the ultimate one. God himself is going to come to the earth in visible form and the judgments and the plagues and the final judgment and heaven and hell and all the stuff that is associated with the end is about to happen. But before it does, God gives to John and to us some help to know how are we supposed to think about these things? When God does the ultimate miraculous intervention in Revelation 11 through 22, how do we process that? 
as well as how do we process God's miraculous interventions in the past and what God is up to today. Well, Revelation 10 is designed to help us think through these things. In Revelation 10, the first four four verses talk about the angel who is getting ready to sort of announce the end. The angel is described for us in the first four verses, and he's a giant angel who has one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. And the most prominent aspect of the decision is that in his hand, he holds a little scroll. The text continues, verse five. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. This is the preparation for the final sounding of the trumpet. This is the last trumpet that sounds. And the angel who raises his hand to swear by God, there will be no more delay. This is the end. This is the beginning of the end. Everything that follows from here on out, this is God's final, ultimate, miraculous intervention God himself is going to come and judge all the wickedness of the earth. And you and I are supposed to say, hallelujah. We're supposed to think, Lord, it's about time. We're supposed to feel, man, Lord, we have been waiting for millennia for you to do something about all the sin in this world. And we're supposed to think, God, finally we'll be done with all of the rape and all of the murder and all of the adultery and all of the lies and all of the suffering and all of the death. This is the end of all of that. And we're supposed to stand up and cheer and we're supposed to say, finally, Lord, Finally, the chaos of this world. We saw glimpses of it this week. You see it all the time. The world is full of lawlessness and chaos and sin and pain and suffering and death. And when the angel blows the final trumpet, God comes and makes all things right. That all these prayers that we've been praying for all of this time, God, do something. God, intervene. Jesus, come quickly. Jesus, make things right. Jesus, establish your kingdom. Jesus, we're tired of the governments of this world. We're tired of the businesses and the, and the schools and Hollywood and all the stuff going on. We're tired of the foreign powers and the corruption and all. Jesus, would you please come and establish your eternal kingdom on this earth? And the angel raises his hand and says, there will be no more delay. And we do, we say amen. But 
But the question is, when God miraculously intervenes, how should we process this? And so before the trumpet sounds, God gives us a visual illustration to let us know how he's processing things and to help us process not only what's coming in the future, nor what's happened in the past, but what's going on right now. And this visual illustration is all based on this little scroll. Verse eight, then the voice that I had heard from heaven, that's Jesus, spoke to me, that's John, once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. What this little scroll represents, it's a prophetic illustration. What the little scroll represents is the prophetic declarations of God. It represents the prophetic declarations of God from the Old Testament, like the death of the Assyrians, the prophetic declaration of God about uh, Israel and Egypt and Sodom and Gomorrah and David and Absalom, all of these prophetic declaration of God where he decrees he's going to intervene in human history. It doesn't represent everything that God has ever said or done. That's why, if you heard earlier when Anne was reading, there's this mysterious thing about the seven thunders speaking. And God says, don't write that stuff down in the scroll. The scroll represents the miraculous interventions decreed by God that have been prophetically given to us. It represents all the stuff that's coming in the future in Revelation that God has already prophetically decreed is going to happen. It represents, in my opinion, also things like COVID-19, which is God's miraculous moving on the earth. And the point of this scroll is, it's designed as a prophetic illustration to help us and John understand how should we process the results of these prophetic decrees. There's two significant features about this scroll when John eats it. The first is that it's sweet in his mouth. And this is the idea that these are the declarations of God. The scroll represents the things that God has said will happen, the things that God has made happen. And the idea is taste and see that the Lord is good. That David says, your word is like honey in my mouth. And that even the difficult things or the hard things, when the Lord spoke rescue and salvation for the children of Israel surrounded by the Assyrians, this was sweet. This was a great blessing for them that every word that comes from God's mouth, even the words of judgment, every word is flawless. Every word is blameless. Every word is pure. Every word is perfect. God cannot speak a false word. God cannot 
speak something that is sourced in hatred or in anger or in bitterness. God is love. Everything he does, everything he says has a sweetness to it. And so because the scroll represents the prophetic words of God, it's sweet in John's mouth. It's a reminder to us that everything God does has a sweetness to it. Everything God says has a sweetness to it, even the hard things. The second aspect of the scroll, though, is that it turns John's stomach sour. This is the recognition that when God acts, there is a bitterness associated with it. There is a pain. There is a hardship. This bitterness is like the bitterness that maybe some of you have experienced. If you have a rebellious child living at home or in your classroom, and at some point, although you love this child, the chaos, the hardship, the difficulty is simply too much. And there's a sweetness when you finally say enough is enough. You gotta leave home. You can't be in this class. There is a sweetness to the fact that the chaos has ended. (laughs) But there is a bitterness that this child that you love is no longer under your roof. There is a bitterness to the fact that this was your baby that you can no longer have be around your other children. This is a person you invested in and tried to teach who can no longer be around other students. It's the bitterness you might feel after a bad divorce. In one sense, once the divorce is complete, there is at least some level of peace. The arguing, the fighting, the constant accusations, all of those things, there's some sweetness to the fact that, you know what, we just simply closed that chapter. But there's also a bitterness. This person that you now loathe was somebody you once loved. It was somebody you might have had children with. It's someone you do have some good memories with. And the bitterness is the feeling this marriage is now dead. It's a loss, it's gone. That bitterness is the feeling that some of us have had at the end of a long struggle with a physical illness when one of our loved ones finally passes away. If we're honest, there is a sweetness because being a caregiver is hard. It's hard to watch somebody struggle. It's hard to watch day after day, how is this gonna go? And there is a sweetness, especially for a Christian to say, you know what, they're at home. They're with Jesus now. The struggle has ended. And it's okay to feel relieved. But there's also a bitterness. Bitterness that that person is gone. That there's a hole and avoid, and that no matter how much we dress up death, 
and we say the death of a Christian is precious in the sight of the Lord. It is. It's still death. And it's painful. This is the bitterness that God feels. You see, we're about to read a bunch of chapters in which a whole lot of people are going to be like the Assyrians getting put to death. We're going to hear a lot of stories where God's judgment rains down from heaven. And the thing to remember is, and he says it in this passage, all the creatures are God's creation. And that God loves every single one who is put to death. And that what we'll hear in the rest of the chapters from God's perspective is him crying out, oh Absalom, my son, my son, I wish it had been me instead of you. That despite the evil and the wickedness, every single human being is created by God and loved by God. For God so loved the world, loved the whole world, not just the people in this room, not just the people watching, not just the people who named you, the whole world, every single human being, God loves them desperately, totally, and completely. And what Revelation 10 is meant to remind us is God's perspective on all that is happening, all that did happen, all that will happen, is there is a sweetness to all that God does. But the pain and the sorrow brings a bitterness that God grieves the death and the destruction even of the wicked. And then at the end of Revelation, when the books are open, and after God has begged and pleaded with people to accept Jesus as Lord, when those names are not written in the book of life, and God is forced to consign them to eternal separation in hell, Revelation 10 reminds us it's a bitter pill to swallow. It is a painful and hard thing for God and for us. So what should we do with this teaching? Three things I want to leave with you. First, and I'm speaking specifically to those who are not yet Christians or who are claiming to be Christians but engaged in sinful behavior sure that there's not going to be any consequences. Let me tell you with all of my heart, please, God has shown himself over and over and over again to be willing to swallow the bitter pill to deal with sin. If you and I think he's just going to wave his hand, if we think he's going to wink, if we think he's just going to put his arm around us and go, hey, it's no big deal, he has shown time and time and time again 
He cannot and will not ignore sin. And even though it cuts him to his heart, even though he is grieved, he will eat that scroll. He will pronounce those prophetic declarations because he must. He cannot allow the Assyrians to continue to besiege his people. He cannot do it. He cannot allow the Midianites to continue to oppress the Israelites. He cannot allow Absalom to revolt against David and against God. He cannot allow it to happen. And so please hear that even though God's heart is grieved, he will still go ahead with these prophetic declarations. And he has shown time and again, Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, Canaan, what is happening in the world today that God does not ignore sin and wickedness and that he is willing to stomach the bitterness to get rid of the death. And so please, if there is sin in your life, if you have not yet accepted, he offers salvation freely. Please understand that although it will grieve his heart in ways we will never get, he has purposed that he will do it and he has no other choice. The second thing to take from this, and here I speak especially to those among us who may resonate more with the bitter things of life. Maybe you love depressing movies. Maybe you love dark chocolate because it's got that bitterness to it. I want you to understand that's good because the reason why a depressing movie can be great is because it can remind us that we're not alone, that our life is not the only life that's got problems. The reason why a depressing book can actually somehow be encouraging is to remind us that other people too are going through hard things. If you're the kind of person who might be more naturally drawn to some of the bitter aspects, acknowledging the bitter aspects of life, I just want you to notice in this passage that it's very subtle, but in one way the sweetness is being emphasized. Now it uses a grammatical structure that we don't use in English, but is often used in Greek. It's called a chiastic structure, and it's named after the Greek letter that looks like an X. And what it's meant to do is it's meant to draw your attention to whatever's in the center of the X. And so if you'll notice very carefully in the passage, it's laid out this way. It will be sour in your stomach, but sweet in your mouth. It will be sweet, and then when he ate it, it's sweet in his mouth, but sour in his stomach. The sweetness is what's at the center of the X. And the encouragement for those of us who are more prone to see the bitter things of life. Everything God does has a sweetness to it. Not everything humans do is sweet, but everything God does has a sweetness to it. Even the hard things, even the difficult things, every word that he speaks, everything he pronounces, there is a sweetness to it. And the encouragement to you, look for those sweet things. The third thing is for those of us who are more drawn to the sweet things of life. That's probably more me. Maybe that's you. 
we don't like the sweet and sour sauce, we like the sweet, sweet sauce. No dark chocolate, no semi-sweet chocolate, milk chocolate. Just pure, good, sweet milk chocolate. We like hero movies. We want everything to work out in the end. The encouragement to us is that in another way, it's actually the bitterness that's being emphasized. The sweetness of the scroll is in John's mouth for a moment, but there's a sense in which there's a pit in your stomach because of the sourness and the bitterness and the encouragement to us. We don't always have to pretend everything's okay. You don't have to try to cheer everybody up. You don't have to bury your head in the sand. Life has a lot of bitterness. Life has a lot of hardship. The people around you who are grieving at the suffering of life are not just unnecessarily pessimistic. God is grieving as well. And if you're able to simply read the stories of 185,000 people being killed and think, yeah, but look what God did, how amazing is that? That's fine. But that's not how God's reading those stories. And so the encouragement to you and I is to engage in the bitterness, to sit in it, to absorb it, to cry over it. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.